Today we enter the final stretch of our journey through the book of Romans. And it's been a long time. We've been in this for three years now. And uh, I said at the beginning of the year, a bold statement of faith that I didn't have a whole lot of confidence in that we would finish this year. And uh, here we are on the cusp of finishing the book of Romans. Um, The rest of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 contain the closing of the letter. And it's here in this stretch of the book that we'll be reminded that Romans is indeed a letter. Uh, We read it as a book and we have studied it as a book and it's a very deep theological book, but it is a letter. And the text will take on the tone and substance more of a letter in this next section, this final section of the book of Romans. We've been so deep and doctrinal throughout all the area that we've been studying, but now in these final verses, Paul turns towards a more personal conclusion to the letter, just like you might conclude a letter that you would write to uh, someone that you know, in this case, multiple someones that Paul knows. And so we'll see some of that unfold. Now, what I want to say is that even though this is not a teaching portion of the book of Romans, this isn't this isn't a doctrinal section of the book of Romans. There are still some very valuable insights that we can glean from Paul's concluding statements. This is still the divinely inspired word of God. Amen. The Bible said the spirit of God moved upon these men as they wrote what they wrote. And every single word is important and it matters. And there's a lot of truth. And you'll see this morning as we go through uh, the first eight verses of this closing, uh, some, there's some depth there that you might not would expect it at a first glance and say, oh, well, well, now we're towards the end of the letter. And then it all kind of wraps up here. And we're just going to skim over this. You skim over this at the risk of missing some very important insights that are contained there. So what we're going to see today is we'll catch a glimpse of Paul as a person. We'll see the way that Paul viewed his own ministry. We'll see in today's passage that he viewed his ministry as being somewhat related to the Old Testament role of the priest. And that tells us some things about what it means to be a preacher. That tells us some things about what it means to be a saint in the church of God. And we'll also see that Paul regarded himself as a church planter and that he made great effort to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in places where it had never been preached before. He wouldn't build on another man's foundation, he said. So we'll even get some insight into why he thought that why he felt like that was his mission. What was his what was his calling? How did he how did he define his calling? In what terms? And we'll see that unfold in today's reading. So we'll start in verse fourteen. We're going to go through verse twenty one, and then we'll break it down together. If you have it, would you say, "Man, why don't you stand for the the reading of the Word of God?" Verse fourteen says, "And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren." That ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. 
that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, well, I thought I was going to stumble there for a minute. Y'all thought I was going to stumble there for a minute. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so I have, have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. It's a lengthy passage, and part of the reason why we can get away with such a lengthy passage is because, again, uh, the substance of where we are in the book. And would you just pray with me, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for the great grace of God. And I'm asking, Lord, the next few moments as we open up the word of God, that you let it speak into our hearts and our lives. Let us be challenged today, Lord, to never be the same again. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. So verse 14, going back to the beginning, said, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you're also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. So Paul begins the conclusion of his letter by explaining his purpose for writing the letter. That's what we're going to see in the first couple of verses unfold. His approach here is very tactful. Uh, basically, what he's saying in the first verse is, I know that you're already mature Christians. I know that you already understand so much of what I've already shared with you. And, and, and I understand I'm not taking anything away from your experience. Now, this is an important point because the book of Romans is not a beginner's level introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's deep. And Paul can write such a deep letter because he understands that his, his audience is spiritually mature. They have an understanding of these things. They, they have a grasp of these things. So he's not writing to a beginner level of, of, of theology. He's writing a little deeper because he understands. So he starts out his closing by complimenting that church to whom he has been writing. Paul says it this way. He says, I myself am persuaded that you... My brethren, that's a very personal statement. I, myself, you, not just the church, but my brethren. My, my, you're, you're my family. You're, you're a, you're a, we have a close familial relationship together. What Paul is doing is he's establishing the connection that he has with the church in Rome. And we'll learn in this closing, and later on we're going to see that he's personally acquainted with some of the people that are in, in Rome that will be the recipients of this letter. And he's going to address them by name a little later. That's why I said it's going to get more like a letter here as this unfolds. But right now what he's doing at the outset of this closing is invoking that friendship as he compliments the Roman Christians. This is how he compliments them. First he says that ye also are full of goodness. That basically 
refers to a morally upright character, a general goodness of heart that loves righteousness and opposes everything that is unrighteous or evil. They're, what Paul's saying is their nature is good. They're, they're filled with goodwill towards their fellow man. They're motivated by a desire to do that which is good. They're not just going through the motions of being Christian to fulfill the obligation that's been placed upon them. They're doing this from their heart. They have a heart full of goodness. Now, the use of that word full is somewhat of a hyperbole. By saying that they're filled with goodness, Paul is not necessarily saying that they're absolutely perfect, that that they, they've got all the goodness that they could ever acquire or attain, because there's no man that's perfect. Amen? We're all growing in our faith. But Eastern culture dictates, and this is, again, Paul writes a letter, and he writes it his, both his opening and his closing, every time he writes, are, are very much follow a form of discourse or a form of writing that is common to his era and, and common to this kind of a, a closing and, and the, the statements of, of kindness are the fact that they are somewhat overstated to drive home the point. You, instead of just saying they're a good person, you say they're the best. You know, Instead of just saying that they're, they're, they have a, a good understanding, you say they have all knowledge. So there is a little bit of, of hyperbole involved here. Uh, the point is not that they have obtained all the goodness that they could obtain. The point is that they have an abundance of goodness in them. Being good and living right are not just occasional things that they do. It is a part of who they are. Amen? Paul next praises the church at Rome for being complete in knowledge or filled with all knowledge. Again, Paul is not saying that they're all-knowing. There's only one that's all-knowing. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's the only one that is. Amen? So Paul's not saying that they are all-knowing. He's not saying that they have complete knowledge of every subject that, you know, they're, they're a math whiz and geography whiz and science. And they got a, what do you, the, the, the compliment, the scope of the compliment is limited to the subject at hand. And what he's saying is that they have a full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When it comes to things that pertain to be a, a being a follower of Jesus, the Roman church has a strong practical understanding of the gospel. Amen. They have a knowledge that has guided them in, in a life of righteousness and goodness. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul combines goodness and knowledge together as characteristics of the Roman church. There's a move underfoot in our current generation to set aside knowledge and just focus on goodness. In other words, there are some voices in our culture today that say that doctrine doesn't really matter anymore. That you can believe whatever you want to believe, that whatever seems right to you is good for you, and whatever seems right to me is good for me. And you believe it the way you believe it, and I'll believe it the way I believe it, and it'll all be okay because the true indicator of a good Christian life is the acts of goodness and kindness and the love that exists between us. And I'll accept you, and you accept me, and we'll all be okay because we'll live out this goodness. Amen. That camp says live any way you want to live, do anything you want to do, believe anything you want to believe or don't believe anything at all. 
but be good to your fellow man. Give to the needy. Work in the soup kitchen. Let love rule the day. Let love be your guiding principle. Let goodness be the thing that you exhibit, but don't worry so much about the finer points of doctrine. After all, God loves us all, and he died for us all, and his love will eventually prevail in our lives if we'll just keep doing that which is good. Now, while all of that sounds good, nothing can be further from the truth. Paul doesn't celebrate the goodness of the Romans alone. Rather, he celebrates both their goodness and their knowledge together. It's not an either-or proposition, as if you could just take the goodness and leave behind the knowledge. It's a both-and situation. Amen. That where goodness and knowledge are inseparable. They're joined together. They belong together in the life of a believer. A believer doesn't just have love and compassion and, and goodness. A believer has a, a faith and doctrine and guiding principles. Amen. A, a believer doesn't just live in, in a way that is good to his fellow man. A believer lives in a way that is righteous unto God and good to his fellow man. Amen? In his third compliment, Paul declares that the Romans are able also to admonish one another. What he's saying is they're competent to instruct each other. Paul's basically saying that the Roman Christians do not, don't need him to come in and admonish them. They, they're fully capable of admonishing each other. They, they have a level of spiritual maturity. They have a level of knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're, they're capable of helping each other alone. Amen. So then the question comes up, why then does Paul write to them? And he begins to answer that in the next verse. It says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. So next, Paul explains why he felt it was necessary then to write to the Romans if they were capable of admonishing each other in light of their spiritual maturity. Why does he take pen in hand to write such a lengthy and bold discourse? After all, they're mature enough to instruct each other. Uh, they're, they're mature enough to help each other grow in their faith. Why has he then set out to speak so boldly to them? So he gives his reasons. He starts with this, uh, putting them in mind or, or putting you in mind, he says. What, what the, the context of that phrase is reminding them of the substance of the gospel. Paul said, I, I felt it was necessary, I felt it was good to remind you of the truth that you've already encountered. I know that you, you've got a deeper knowledge. I know that you have some spiritual maturity. But every now and then, you need to be reminded of what you know. Amen? Come on, Brother Anderson's been in this thing so long, he's forgotten stuff he doesn't even know he knew. Every now and then, you need to be reminded of the stuff you know. Somebody needs to come along and remind you. So Paul said, that's, that's part of the role of this letter. That's part of why I've taken my pen in my hand. I, I, I'm going to remind you of the substance of the gospel. Also, he felt like God had given him special grace or a special ministry to fulfill that this letter is the outgrowth of that special grace or that special ministry. God has gifted him through grace with a specific ministry that can benefit the Romans. And that ministry is described in the next verse. Verse 16 says, 
that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So here we see the scope of that special grace that Paul has been given by God that is part of the justification for writing the letter to the Romans. He is called to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And he has been specifically gifted in this area by God, which means that his ministry is particularly suited to the Roman church. If you'll remember way back in the very beginning when we introduced the book of Romans, we said that it was a mixed ethnicity church. There were Jews and Romans alike in our Jews and Gentiles alike in the Roman church, but there were more Gentiles than there were Jews. And we know this because just a few letters, a few years before Paul wrote this letter, the Roman governor uh, Claudius, he issued a decree that said all the Jews had to leave Rome, the penalty of their life. There was a mass exodus from Rome by Jews. Now, over, not all Jews left, and over time, some Jews came back. And so there are some Jewish believers in the church at the point of this writing, but the majority of this church is Gentile. So Paul said, look, I've got a special grace from God, grace being a ministry. I've been gifted by God for a ministry to the Gentiles. So I take my pen in my hand and I write to the Romans because I've got a ministry that's specially suited to you. Amen? The language that follows that is reminiscent of the Old Testament priesthood. The verb translated as ministering in the phrase ministering the gospel means to perform holy service or to act as a priest or to offer sacrifice. Paul viewed his ministry, the ministry that God had given him, the special grace that God has given him to minister to the Gentiles, he viewed that as being somewhat related to the Old Testament role of a priest. And as he goes on, we'll see that unfold. He, he is called to minister the gospel, to be a, a priest, to, to offer, uh, perform a holy service. And then he says he's called to offer up the Gentiles. So he offers the Gentiles unto God. Presenting an offering to God is the role of a priest. Priest brings an offering to God, right? And as a preacher, Paul understands that just as the priest brought an offering to God, his job is to present the people that he preaches to as an offering unto God. Think about it for a minute. The preacher's calling is not just to proclaim the gospel. The preacher's calling is to present a church to God as an offering. That's what he does. He's a priest that stands and lifts up an offering unto God. The offering is not the sermon. It's not the study. It's not the life of sacrifice or dedication. The offering is the people that he touches through his ministry. Amen? That's why pastors are so concerned about your life and whether or not you're at church. Because I, I, I'm one of these days I'm offering you to God. Amen? And I want what I offer to God to have been impacted by the grace of God and by the power of God and by the righteousness of God. And so Paul said that's his job. He... He offers the Gentiles to God. Now, there's a redemptive side to that. The main purpose of a priest, the main purpose that he offers sacrifices to God was to restore people to right relationship with God. 
the Old Testament, you brought a sin sacrifice to the priest because you'd sin. You'd transgress God. And the only way to get in right standing with God is to have a priest come and offer that sacrifice. You couldn't offer it for yourself. The priest had to come offer that sacrifice unto God for you. And so that priest became the mediator of this redemption. It was a mediator of bringing folks into righteousness and right standing with God. It was the offering that covered sins and put folks in covenant with God. So Paul sees his role as a minister in terms of redemption. He's calling a people. His, his ministry is to call folks, in particular Gentiles, back into fellowship with God. That's what he does. He does the same thing that the priest does when he offers a sin offering and makes a way for a sinful people to be covered by the blood and be able to come into covenant and fellowship with God. That's what Paul does when he preaches the gospel. He bridges the sinner with salvation, and he becomes that element that brings to them the opportunity to know God and to be in right standing with God. So there's a redemptive role there. Paul, in his role as a priestly preacher, offers up the Gentiles to God as a sacrifice that he says might be acceptable. For Paul, it's not enough just to preach to them. He wants to bring them into the condition of being acceptable unto God. It's not enough just to stand in the pulpit and declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's his calling to change lives, to mold people, to make them acceptable unto God. After all, the offering is about the restoration of fellowship. It's about bringing people into right covenant with God. So Paul doesn't just go out and gather up a crowd of Gentiles and get whoever he can from wherever he can and bring them together and present them to God as they are. No more than the Old Testament priest goes out to the the barnyard and just gets any old lamb that he can find and brings it in and offers it as a sacrifice unto God. That's not how it worked. What he brought to God, he made sure was right, was pure, was cleansed, was, was prepared. And so Paul goes to the Gentiles and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ with the understanding that that gospel has the power to change lives and the offering that he brings to God that might be acceptable unto God is an offering of lives that had been changed. Amen? To clarify that, he goes on and declares that those that offering is sanctified by the Holy Ghost. What Paul is saying is he preaches. He goes out to the Gentiles and he preaches the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To anybody who will listen, he's not discriminating. He goes out and gets whoever will listen and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. But it is those that respond. It is those that repent of their sins are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and filled with a gift of the Holy Ghost. That's who he offers unto God as an offering to be acceptable because because it's been sanctified by the Holy Ghost. That's what makes the offering acceptable. Listen, we're a spirit-filled people. Amen. We, we better have the Holy Ghost inside of us because that's what makes us an acceptable offering unto God. Amen. I feel a rabbit trail coming on. I'm going to do my best not to chase it very far. Praise God. <laughs> 
you know, all it takes to get the accolades of men is is to just do things well and do things good. And if we get the music just as good as we can get the music and we get the vocalist all in key and singing the, the right harmony at the right time and, and we get the preacher polished and a sermon down to, to, to just the nuts and bolts that is attracted to the ears, that'll gather a crowd. That'll get the approval of men. But that won't get the approval of God because if this isn't anointed, if this isn't spirit-filled, if this isn't anointed, if this isn't spirit-filled, if this this isn't anointed and this isn't spirit-filled. If that isn't anointed and isn't spirit-filled, it's not acceptable unto God. We're a Holy Ghost-filled people. This is a Holy Ghost-filled church. What we need more than anything else is not just good singing. It's not just good preaching. It's not just a a good worship service. Amen. What we need more than anything else uh, is the anointing of the Spirit of God. Uh, We need the power of God uh, to breathe on us. Uh, It doesn't matter how many songs we sing. It doesn't matter how long the sermon is. It doesn't even matter if the preacher preaches or not. Uh, What we need is the breathing of the Spirit of God into this house. That's what makes us different. That's what makes us apostolic. That's what makes us acceptable unto God. Not what I do. My holiness doesn't make me acceptable. My, 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 my pattern of behavior doesn't make me acceptable. My charitable giving, that's not what makes me acceptable. The goodness, that's not what made me acceptable. My knowledge, that's not what made me acceptable. What makes me acceptable is the Holy Ghost. That's why there are people that can be oh, the, the, the paragon of virtue and righteousness and, and they, they seem to be everything that you can imagine that a, a follower of Jesus Christ ought to be, but their attitude is rotten and it stinks. Uh, why? Because there's not any Holy Ghost in there that's been replaced by all that other stuff. What makes us holy? Now, that's not to say you can forsake righteous living because the Holy Ghost won't let you forsake righteous living. It's not going to dwell in the midst of unrighteousness. The Holy Ghost isn't going to stay where sin prevails and sin abides. It's saying that I've got to be Holy Ghost filled. I've got to be spirit led. I've got to be spirit anointed. I've got to allow the Holy Ghost to move in my life and through my life. That's what makes me as a saint acceptable unto God. That's what makes my ministry as a preacher acceptable unto God. That's what makes the singing as a singer acceptable unto God. That's what makes a musician acceptable unto God. It's the spirit led anointing of the Holy Ghost. I said I wasn't going to chase that rabbit very far. But I done went right off into it. Amen. Paul's success is not measured by the size of his crowd. It's not measured by the, by the, by the, the, the volume of his sermons or the complexity of his writing. His success is measured by the quality of the offering. It's measured by the quality of the lives that are produced uh, by what he preaches. Uh, They are the sacrifice uh, that Paul offers unto God in hopes that it will be acceptable because the Holy Ghost has sanctified it. That word sanctified has to do with separation. What is sanctified is set apart unto God. It's set apart for the service of God. It is declared to be holy 
and is not to be used in a manner that is considered to be unholy. That's what the Holy Ghost does for your life. The Holy Ghost, listen, you can come to church and you can get, you can repent of your sins, you can get baptized in the name of Jesus, and you can do your best to live righteous and holy and godly, and you're going to discover that you have constantly your flesh with you, and sin is constantly going to pull at you, and some bondage is going to get a hold of you. You'll never overcome those things without the Holy Ghost. Amen. It takes that life-changing Spirit of God coming in and dwelling inside of you to break the bondage, the hold of that sin and that repetitive sin, those things that have had a hold on you for years and years and years and years. And I can promise you this. When you let your dedication slip and you let your devotion slip and you let that Holy Ghost inside of you begin to get old and cold, uh, those old things that used to have a hold on you start getting a hold on you again and start rising up and that old man, that dead man uh, starts to rule again inside of you. It's the Holy Ghost that sanctifies you. That's what sets you apart. That's what makes you holy and that's what keeps you holy. Amen? Paul is not just gathering together a herd of sheep that are tainted and unclean. His role as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to gather together a people whose lives may be presented as holy and acceptable unto God. I'll tell you, that's the greatest calling that God ever placed on a man is to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be that mediator of the covenant, to be able to bring folks into relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that as a preacher and as a pastor that I never forget that my greatest calling, amen, is not to be a businessman. It's not to handle uh, with, with all the business of the church as a professional and, and with all the, 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 the smooth and 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 attractive ways that ministry can be done, but my job is to bring a people into the presence of God, holy and acceptable unto God. That's my calling. Amen? You read Paul. He's a little rough around the edges sometimes. He, he's a little... Peter said he's hard to understand sometimes. But he's doing his job. His job is to bring folks into covenant with God. Holy, acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Ghost. We need that more than we need anything else. Amen. I have therefore, he says in verse 17, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. The use of the word glory here has to do with boasting. And it's important to note that Paul's not saying that he can boast in himself. He's saying, I can boast in Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not something I've done. This is not something I'm taking the credit for. If I bring a people before God and they're acceptable to him, this is not due to anything that I've done. This is something that Jesus Christ has done through me. And the glory for those things which pertain to him belongs to God and God only. Amen. So when Paul looks across the crowd of Gentiles that he presents as an offering unto God, he rejoices. He, he boasts, not in what he has accomplished, but in what God has done through his ministry. Verse 18 says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. So now he takes it a step further. 
in, in, in really complex and confusing English, basically what he says is, I wouldn't dare to take credit for the things that Jesus has done. Amen. I wouldn't dare to take credit for what I can't do, what only God can do. The important part of that verse is the latter half. It's there that he, he kind of tells what it is that Jesus has done through his ministry. He has made the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Obedient. That's a strong word. We've seen it echoed throughout the book of Romans, starting the very first chapter in the fifth verse, where obedience was linked with faith. And he talked about that obedience that springs from faith. And we've seen it throughout the book as he discussed slavery. It said you were, you were a slave to sin. It was the master. You were obedient to sin. But now you're a slave to God. And you have to be obedient to him. Amen. Paul, it's, it's an interesting choice of words because Paul's ministry goes beyond just getting men to say that they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. His ministry results in changed life where Gentiles were once obedient to sin. They are now obedient to God. There's a significant change. It affects everything they do. And he goes so far as to describe it both in word and in deed. It's the things they say and the things they do. Everything. That, that encompasses the whole of their life. The whole of their action, all of their life is changed by the power of the Holy Ghost working in them. So we, we see this link between faith and obedience. We see this link between belief and behavior. Paul's goal is not just to bring the Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. His goal is to bring them to the obedience of faith. If I, told, I use this example all the time. It's the best way I know to describe it. But if I told you I had a $100 bill and I give it to the first person that come up here and got it, if you don't get out of your chair and come, you, you don't believe me. Because if you really believed I was going to give you a $100 bill, and I don't know about every single person, but the vast majority of you could use $100. Bucks. You already, you've already, it's already run through your mind what you do with it. And if you really believed you are going to get it, you'd be here. But you don't believe it if you don't obey. You don't believe it if you don't do it. You can preach all day long, repent, but until somebody believes that God's going to forgive them of their sins, they're never going to obey the command to repent. Amen. Sins are not remitted just by going down in that water. There's nothing special about that water. Amen. Sins are remitted by obedience. We go down in that water. In faith that when he speaks the name of Jesus over me, amen, I'm not just baptized into a church, I'm baptized into Jesus Christ. That faith is what washes my sins away. Amen. When I come to the altar and he fills me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's not just a belief that I can speak in another language, it's my obedience to God. And my yielding of, you can't receive the Holy Ghost till you surrender your whole self to Him. And it's that surrender, it's that yielding that lets the Holy Ghost come in and flow through you. Amen. It's a faith linked with obedience. I was not serious when I said that because I was using my wife's microphone. I was going to be long-winded. That was never going to be an issue until I encountered this rabbit trail and just been chasing it. 
Amen. I, I'm just, I'm close. Uh, if you'll just bear with me another 10 minutes, I'll finish up. Is that okay? Amen. Verse 19 says, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem roundabout until Illyricum, see, I told you I was going to fall over that sooner or later. Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So all of this that he has done, this presenting the Gentiles unto God, all of this ministry of reconciliation, ministry of redemption that he does, it has been accomplished through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. Everything that God did through Paul was accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God working in his life. It was a Holy Ghost filled ministry that changed life. Miracles, signs, and wonders were not the product of enticing speech or men's wisdom. They were not the product of a, 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 a of, 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 of uh, attractive sayings or, or, or speech that was smooth and easy to comprehend. What it was was a product of the anointing of the Holy Ghost. It was the Spirit of God working in his life and through his life. Uh, it was the product of a Spirit-filled, God-anointed ministry. That's the key to reaching our world. I've already hammered on it quite a bit this morning, but we have to be Spirit-filled people. That's the key to seeing lives changed. Listen, you can't set the lost free. You can't break the bondage of alcohol or pornography or whatever drugs or whatever other kind of sin has a hold on somebody. You, you don't have that power. But the Spirit of God can. There's an anointing that rests upon a child of God that can lay their hands on the sick and they're healed, not because of me, but because of that spirit that operates. There's an anointing that can literally encounter the bondage of addiction and break it. That someone is completely set free. You can't do that though. If you don't pray. If you don't fast. If you're not in relationship with God. If you don't have that saturation of the anointing of the Holy Ghost. The power is in the Holy Ghost. The power is not. And I've kind of already said this. The power is not in our music alone. It's not in our singing alone. It's not in our preaching alone. Listen, it's not even in our worship alone. We tend, to, we tend to lift worship up to this higher pedestal. That's not where the power is. The power is in the Holy Ghost. And our music and our singing and our worship and our preaching will only have the power to transform lives if they're saturated by the Holy Ghost. This is a spiritual endeavor. This is a spiritual thing. And we will never win the world until we're a spirit-filled church. We're not going to reach them by appealing to their intellect. We're not going to reach them by competing with their philosophies. We do a lot in, in graduate school to try to understand the postmodern mindset. And that's all good because that's, the, that's the, the atmosphere that we're ministering in. But we're not going to out-philosophy them. We're going to out-spirit them. Amen. When we reach them, it's not going to be because we figure out how to put the gospel into the terms that they relate to and can understand. Now, all of that's going to be beneficial. But when we reach them, it's going to be because the gospel that we preach is spirit-anointed. And if we don't get that spirit component, we won't ever accomplish 
what we set out to do. Amen? In the latter half of the verse, we see the scope of Paul's ministry. He mentions two cities. The language indicates there that he's describing an ark. What the King James Version translates as roundabout is a word or phrase that has to do with a circular circumference. And if you look at a map and you, you locate Jerusalem, uh, that's the starting point. That's the headquarters of the church in Paul's day. That's right there in the middle of Israel. And then you go to that other town, Illyricum. Last time I have to say it. From now on, I'm going to say Yugoslavia and Bosnia because you'll know then where it is. Because that's where that city is. That city is in the place that is modern-day Yugoslavia or Bosnia. That's the region that he's talking about. So if you go to Yugoslavia or Bosnia and you draw an arc across over to Jerusalem, you encompass the area that Paul ministered in. Now, the book of Acts never tells of Paul going to this second city that he mentions, but we'll take on faith if he said he preached from Jerusalem to there, that he preached from Jerusalem to there. Amen? But that's the arc of his ministry. That's, that's the area that he impacted in his preaching. And, and that's a broad arc. And Paul says that within that arc, he has fully preached the gospel of Christ. And he's accomplished that task of bringing churches to that area that will continue the evangelism. And Paul doesn't mean that he preached to every single soul within that arc. What he means is he's been through there and he's established churches and believers and planted, planted fellowships and planted churches. And, and when he left, there's an apparatus there that's going to evangelize that, that area. And so Paul says, my ministry, I have fully impacted this region. This is what I've done. Verse 20 says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Paul was a pioneer. He intentionally went to where Jesus had never been named before and preached the gospel there. He did that, he said, because he didn't want to build on another man's foundation. He deliberately avoided working in areas where others had labored. You can almost imagine the apostle Paul taking in the scope of his world, maybe looking at a map somewhere in the old Roman Empire and, and looking across the map and saying, you know, I think I'm going to go where the gospel's needed most. Yugoslavia looks interesting. Let's go up there and let's preach the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way there. Let's go where people have never heard of Jesus and then let's tell them who he is. That's the reason why we refer to Paul as a missionary, perhaps the very first missionary, and as a church planter. That's what he did. He went where they had not heard, and he planted churches. Verse 21, the final verse we'll cover this morning, says, But as it is written, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. So now Paul quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 15. And it gives some insight into his motivation for this calling. The prophet said, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that had not heard shall understand. So Paul sees his ministry as the fulfillment of that prophecy. The Gentiles are the people in the Old Testament that the prophet is referring to have not seen and they've not heard and they've not understood. But the prophet declared that there would come a time when they would see and they would understand and they would hear. And so Paul sees himself as fulfilling that prophecy. He's going out to those who have not seen and causing them to see. He's going out to those who have not heard and causing them to hear. He's going out 
to those that have not understood and causing them to understand. He's showing them Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. That's his calling. So if you were to walk up to the Apostle Paul when you get to heaven and say, what is your, the, the scripture that is the theme of your ministry? You're liable to hear him quote this scripture because this is what he believed he was doing. Amen. He was going to those who had not seen, those who had not heard, those who had not understood. And he was fulfilling the prophetic voice of the prophet Isaiah all the way back in the Old Testament who said there's coming a day when those who haven't seen are going to see. There's coming a day when those who haven't heard are going to hear. There's coming a day when those who haven't understood are going to understand. And Paul said, that's what I do. Today, the 21st century, we walk in the footsteps of Paul. Each and every one of us is in our own right a missionary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though we live in the Bible Belt, in a region where Christianity is considered to be the norm, there are many around us who have not heard, have not seen, and have not understood. Our calling is the same as Paul's calling. Our calling is to go to them, tell them the old, old story of Jesus Christ who came from glory who laid down his life on an old rugged cross, who died for my sins and for yours. It's our calling to cause those who have not seen to see Jesus Christ. It's our calling to cause those who have not heard to hear of Jesus Christ, those who have not understood to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That's our calling. And just like Paul we can't accomplish that mission until we're spirit-filled. Lots of times we make the mistake, if you stand with me, we're Pentecostal, and lots of times we make the mistake of, especially young Christians, young Pentecostals, of, of just assuming the Holy Ghost is a one-time thing. That's my ticket into heaven. And, and, and that's what I've got to, I've got to repent of my sins, I've got to be baptized in the name, and I've got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And once I get that, I'm done. That's not the truth. Once I get that, I begin. Hallelujah. Amen. Once I've been filled with the Holy Ghost, it starts. And it's my job to stay spirit-filled. It's my job to stay in that place where the Holy Ghost is working and moving in my life because that's the source of the ministry that God has for me. And yes, God has a ministry for every person under the sound of my voice. For years and years, preachers have harped on the importance of, of prayer and a personal walk with God. But I'm not sure that we as a people have fully recognized the significance of those things. Without them, we'll never fulfill our calling. Without them, we'll just be a group that meets on Sunday morning. We have good fellowship. We have great food. We have good music. Preacher's all right. But we'll never change our world until the Spirit, until the anointing of the Holy Ghost not, not just flowing through the preacher. Not, you know, not just flowing through the guys on the platform. But until the anointing of the Holy Ghost is flowing through every member of this church. That's where we become dynamic. That's where we begin to impact our city. That's where we begin to change our world. That's where we go out and we bring a people out of the world for the glory 
of the name of Jesus Christ. We begin to reap a harvest field that is ready, that is all around us, that is ready and right and willing. If only someone would come and share. If only someone would come and care. If only someone would come and bring them the gospel of Jesus. You say, well, Brother McCall, I've tried. I've done done my best my whole life to be a a witness, and I've tried. Why don't you try praying until you get in the Holy Ghost? And then saying, Lord, lead me to somebody who's hungry. Because there's somebody in your life that's hungry. Why don't you pray, Lord, why don't you lead me to one person this week that is hurting, that is desperate, that is hungry. And then stay prayed up and sensitive to the Holy Ghost so that when that moment occurs, you'll recognize it and you'll allow the Holy Ghost to use you. That's how we touch our world. That's how we're going to fill these pews up. Not because my ministry is validated by the size of the congregation, but because that's what we're called to do. We reach our world. And if we're not reaching our world, we might as well shut the doors, lock them, turn off the lights, and give it back to the bank. Amen? This isn't a social club. This is a church. We're here to change lives. I want to ask you this morning, you take a moment on a Sunday morning. I feel the presence of God very heavy in this place right now. Such an anointing flowing through this house. I believe that he's calling his people. I believe he's calling every single soul under the sound of my voice. Into covenant. Into relationship. Into a spirit-filled, spirit-anointed walk. I believe he has a vision for your life that is bigger than what you can see and understand. I believe that no matter where you are, whatever age you are, whatever your history and your past is, I believe that God has a future that you have not yet obtained. And I believe he's calling us into that this morning. It starts with being spirit-filled. It starts with being spirit-led. I want to ask you to find a place to pray this morning. Just ask the Holy Ghost, Lord, would you fill me all over again?